Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. She's been Australia's high priestess of pop, an award-winning jazz singer, wears the hat of a fine artistic director, and above all that, Kate Sobrano is a songwriter with the talent to take a tune to the top of the charts. 24 albums over 30 years make Sobrano the most prolific Australian female recording artist of this era. Her work, her craft and her vision are now imbued in our collective DNA. Throughout this magical conversation, Kate shares the reflections of her 30 years in the industry. We unpack how even in her early years, she was shown the power of music as a form of expression in her family. And she shares the moment in her career that still gives her goosebumps because it was a moment when everything came together. And to be honest, even sitting here listening to it gave me goosebumps as well. A deep thinker and clearly with philosophy not too far from her thoughts, Kate shares how she navigates her own energy both on and off stage and the importance of saying a powerful no. A bona fide national treasure, possessing one of the great voices of her generation, soak up the beauty that is Kate Sobrano. Kate, welcome to the studio. Hello. <laughs> it's awesome to be sitting down with you. There, there's a few other things, there's a few jumping off points that I want to dive into, but you've just recently reunited with the band that you started your career with over 30 years ago mm-hmm. uh, and have done some some stage performances with them. I'd love to have you kind of walk me through what was that experience to be on stage, to be singing the hit song, Trust yeah. Me, 30 years on. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, I must say it wasn't my first band or my first successful band, believe it or not, um, just to make sure my housekeeping's complete because it's very funny, you know, these earlier bands that came before I'm talking always come up to me and they're like, you weren't, you, you were with <laughs> us before that. <laughs> so, let, me, let me take you back just a year or two before I'm talking and then I can because there's so much I want to tell you about what's happened recently. It's kind of been a revelation, actually. Um, But as a 14-year-old, I joined a band called Expose and it was merely a whim and... uh, that my hairdresser, who happened to be the bass player in the band at the time. Of course, hairdressers <laughs> and bass playing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had a face for, uh, I guess I was sort of um, projecting look at me, look at me anyway at that age because I was putting myself into his hands. I wanted a Mohican at the time and I was quite radical and he wanted to put me into a hairdressing exhibition and it just happened that he said, hey, by the way, do you sing? And as you know, I'm Hawaiian. Does a cat have a bum? You know. <laughs> and he said, um, "Come to this rehearsal tonight, and which is in a the classic garage out in Ringwood or Nunawading." Um, I put up a song, and we became a band. So that was well before I'm talking. And we won Battle of the Bands actually, just shortly after. And we won a recording session with a, a very famous producer at the time. And oh, it was all meant to go towards the stratospheric kind of levels of success that I'm talking then actually had. But um, I I just changed my mind. Like I, I, I 
I was a very capricious kid. I wanted to be um, in a different type of band. I joined. I, I created with another friend a small jazz trio called the Hoagie Cats, and left that band and started doing uh, inner clubs um, with a view to being sort of the Billie Holiday of my generation. The trademark of my character began really began there because I could see I wasn't satisfied to simply recline into some experience and say, well, this is it, this is everything I've always ever wanted because it's never been enough. Which is fascinating for me as mm. a 14-year-old to sort of almost have that. Um, it's one thing to have the insight. It's another thing to follow follow that insight. True. I guess it was uh, more instinct than insight. It was a prescient sort of feeling within me that I... I had yet to learn much more and I wasn't getting I wasn't getting the education I needed for the music I was chasing. Um, and it's true, I had albums and some of my first albums were some, oh, incredible songwriters actually, Kate Bush, Elton John, um, you know, all the, all the 80s British artists that I loved, um, Annie Lennox, but then all the sort of New York kind of dirgy punk stuff I loved as well. And so I was like... There was this chaos of culture in me, as there was genetically as well, and I just wanted to work out, well, where do I sit? Where's going to be my defining sound within this chaos of sound and culture? So I was merely chasing that. I was, I was you know, it was either following up on my post-punk leanings with Bow Wow Wow and um, Malcolm McLaren, who I then went on to record with as well, and but then I was also chasing this sort of... Americana kind of vibe with the 80s introducing funk and soul and dance bands, Shalimar, Chic, Shaka Khan, you know, all this kind of sound. So I was, I was just, who am I in amongst this? Hence I get to what happened with I'm Talking. So one week shy of my 16th birthday, I'm dating a much older guy at the time who's a friend of theirs and they're looking for a singer. And they're a highly, they're a highly, um, art, funk, instrumental band, highly art-centric. They're not keen on commercial success, which was really cool. I thought that was really kind of sexy. Um, They wanted to go into the college scene and sort of electrify them with this kind of electronic punk funk. And, And I was just the girl that they wanted to bring it. And so I joined them before, yeah, one week shy of my 16th birthday. And did that start to realise some of that expression that you were trying to find? Yeah, it did like, because, yeah, it really did. Um, and, and sometimes, look, and this is where we'll stray into some dangerous territory because I needed to be amongst older people. And, uh, you know, there's a culture today that um, are decrying, you know, the relationships between older men and women. I understand that, especially if you've been taken advantage. There's absolutely nothing that I don't agree with when it comes to um, tearing open that subject and revealing its ugly innards. However, I only got the most amazing advance by being in the company of older people. Uh, I had, in the band themselves, they were 10 and 15 years older than me. My boyfriend was eight years older than me at the time. Um, and I was being introduced to culture, art. Everywhere we travelled, um, one of the senior players in the band, he'd take me, because he was doing an arts degree, he'd take me to the gallery and explain to me all of the um, all the different 
exhibitions, we were seeing the motivation behind artists, where their inspirations came from, and he'd show me music that related to that. I mean, it was really like a kind of Pygmalion story. It was like taking this little tiny kid from the burbs and giving her the world. But there was obviously a uh, hunger and a chasing you around that. So even when you're describing this 14-year-old girl kind of going, well, who am I and what's my expression in the world? And, and at 14, that's, that's, a, that's a not an uncommon question, um, but it was almost like in a very artistic kind of worldly platform you're exploring that where often that's just, well, which bomber jacket am I, will I wear? I think we're infantised. Yeah. I think we're kept too young too long. So it, that's my, that's what I feel. Like I think, and that's a big and bold statement to make, especially when you're talking to people who are putting their kids through high school and they, they're determined to get their kids in education, which is a fine and noble pursuit. Um, but sometimes kids have grown up and by the time they're 14, they want to be in the world, which I was, which was me. And I was that other alternate universe to the one we live today, which is, it's frowned upon to let children follow their dreams that young. Where did that come from? Because that obviously blossomed throughout your childhood and obviously part of your kind of family makeup mm. to to allow that expression, to allow that, not allow, but no, you're it's right. probably it, not the right word. No, we, we, were, we were, look, up, we were a bit of an experiment, this family. We were a social experiment to, unsa- to ourselves because we were, we were, my grandparents were, they weren't libertines, they were, they were in pursuit of life and, and, and experience, but they wanted, um, they wanted to allow the kids and all of us to have the sort of freedom that they weren't allowed to have. And there's a, there is a danger to it. I won't say that I didn't find myself in some very dangerous environments with some very dangerous people confronted some, by some very dangerous choices, but I grew up really fast. <laughs> and, you know, I was moved out on my own before I could even drive. I was in my own apartment in, in Hawthorne. And um, when I think of my kid now, who's now the age, a year older than when I was in my first band, and she yet she's so innocent, I, I have to kind of... Remember. Um, yeah, I have yeah. to go. <laughs> but she's different from me. I, I, think it, I think it's horses for courses. Totally, yeah. yeah, totally. Where did the music come from? Obviously, it was a big my dad. Yeah. Originally, um, my mother's a lover of music and art, and my grandmother was a lover of classical music. So we were constantly exposed to really great music through from you know Beethoven and Chopin, and she was uh, yeah she would listen to arias from Madame Butterfly all the time whilst and she lived with us, so she would, was in the kitchen and the music would be playing constantly. And breakfast, lunch, and tea we would be served up. Uh, you know, oh, you know, the whole thing was gorgeous. But my dad was actually a bugler in the Drum and Bugle Corps for the Marines. So he came to Australia, um, an already established musician, uh, one who didn't want to pursue that necessarily because he was a martial artist, but um, he he gave us this his, his impression of what music had given him, which was world travel one, um, a freedom of expression and romance because he would sit and sing lullabies on his ukulele and, uh, and an auto harp, which is an old country-styled instrument um, for guitarists who don't sort of play guitar but, you know, and it's an unused instrument actually. I think it's a really glorious instrument. It's sort of, um, it's, 
he he was able to on a on a Sunday afternoon uh, kick back with this beautiful instrument um, and fuddle his way across songs and memories that he had. Some of which there were no charts ever written for; they were just sort of handed down Hawaiian songs. Beautiful. And we'd all just pipe up and harmonise with him, and uh, it, it drew us together as a family. We were very very connected, always very very trusted. Uh, very trusted because of it. We, yeah, because we, I don't know, I, we kind of, we knew each other very, very well right from the beginning. So it became the avenue to express an expression of emotion yeah. or a connection. Yeah. I actually today, just yesterday, um, my stepdad, who's also my tour manager and also who was my piano tuner when we were kids, um, he has just finally closed the door on his business, which is to restore and uh, repair beautiful pianos, old pianos, often ones that came over during the war and immigrated through from Europe. Uh, and now the culture is dead, he said. There's nobody requiring them anymore, so there's no point keeping his warehouse open. I know, it's really sad. And I, I, um, and see, I think they're the best friend you could ever offer your children, an upright piano in the lounge room. Because when they're lonely or they're dis- they need a distraction, there's nothing finer than to go to a keyboard and find that part of you that's feeling a certain way and strike the note. Find the note that's giving you your voice without words. That expression it's, through the fingertips. And or, every yeah. lounge room had one and every person was better for it. Mm. And this new culture will be bereft for not having it. It'll be interesting to see if that comes back around. Or if there's a I space wonder, but they'll never have that. those beautiful European cabinets that they had, mahogany and you know oak. And he 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 is a French polisher, so you know they've been deemed old fashioned. But people are going to want them. They're going to want those ones. They're not going to want the new ones. Uh, so when it comes back in fashion, it just may or may not be available. Can you remember a moment at all? Was there a moment or was it just uh, uh, the next thing where you kind of went, this is what I'm going to be doing from a career point of view when it comes to music? I don't remember a moment when I didn't know that. Yeah. It was just so part of you. Just had to do it, compelled. Yeah. I had no choice. And the muse was in me. The muse is still in me. She drives me mad. <laughs> there's many muses in within me. <laughs> there's the fashion muse. There's the there's the literary muse. There's the music muse. There's the oh my god. I just um, and the only one that's quiet and dormant right now, but I think she's going to grow, is the muse that is the social muse. And I just I just never felt that music was a strong enough platform to launch my own ideas about what I think of the world around me thought it was a bit frivolous and perhaps lacking in credibility, but now I realise that um, anyone can do it, actually. They just, you just have to be giving good advice. <laughs> and <laughs> I think check 50 in years with that. In, yeah, you've got to check in with it. So that social muse is growing, you know, from the 50s on, you know, I've collected a lot of information, it seems, and I impart a lot of it to a lot of the kids I mentor and young artists. Um, I'm listening to myself sometimes outside of myself and going, oh, God, I wish I'd known that then uh, and speed tracking them towards some unknown territory with confidence and that's a good thing. I can imagine that comes with timing as well. Like you say, it sort of comes with Yeah, you can't really get it. When, yeah, and also <laughs> perhaps I didn't really give a shit. In the yeah. early days I was like, I don't really care about you, I just care about me. <laughs> Which comes Isn't to the point about of me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I've listened to the wisdom anyway. I know, I, <laughs> no, 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 probably not. You, you, in fact, sometimes 
help to a, to a young artist can be, um, you know, quite, quite you, you're sort of suspicious of it because you wonder what that person, for giving you the help, what they're going to want in exchange. You know, maybe they're going to want to write about how they, they made you afterwards, which is often the case. Mm. Um, often with financial assistance as a kid it was always like, yes, but only if I can have a say over the artistic uh, creation. And you're like, no. Mm, a little party soul kind of drops <sighs> away a little bit. I can yeah. imagine that muse is in you. So sometimes it's best to be a bit lean, a bit hungry, a little bit lost and then find your way through and then from the other side of the path you realise that, oh, look what I did. So you, we talked about you were part of a number of bands and mm. successful bands and, and then went out into a solo career. What were some of the, and I guess it's kind of a dual question, some of the excitement around doing that solo and what well, were some of the hurdles? Well, this is a perfect way to dovetail back to your original question, which is how did it feel this week? Um, and to answer that, it was very emotional because I was never to a no how lost it could be to be without a band. And though there were great triumphs as a solo artist, there was also some great trials, uh, one of which one never expects, which is you feel like you're paying to have friends when you have a band, which is a horrible feeling to wake up one day and go, my God, their livelihood is dependent on me, so they have to be nice. They have to be nice to me. So as meaning a, like as it's a not solo like, artist having well, people yeah, just support I know it's, that, that sounds yes. very like I'm being a bit sort of like cynical about my band, but actually in the end, that's they are simply delivering a job and doing what you need. Whereas with a band, you're brought together. The, the ties that bind you have nothing to do with money to begin with. They only have to do with the fact you share this common interest, and you both and you're all as singularly. Uh, Right, your your focus is singularly attached to this pursuit, but that's not the same when you're a solo artist. I'd never thought of that, but of course, there's a different. It's a difference, and it's not right or wrong. Like no, no, it's just, it's different. just it's different. It's like being a CEO suddenly yeah. in a very successful business. Um, you realise you have to check, you have to check your head sometimes because you can rely on their admiration to make you feel buoyant, and that's actually a false economy. <laughs> You can't go to the bank on that. You have of to love what you're say doing. It's great. Of yes. course, they're going to say it's great. So you have to ask yourself all the time: yeah. Is this job? They love the job. Obviously, you're bringing a lot of energy. You're writing a lot of stuff. But look, in the end, the way it washes out is this: This week we get together, and within the band, first of all, uh, are two very point, very point, potent elements that in right now have never been more potent and that is that we had one of the first and only uh, first female bass players in the country, first dance band ever in the country in a sea of rock and male bands and fronted by two women who I recently wrote, we, were, we are unified but we're independent. So we weren't put together by some amazing creative team at a high-powered record company who needed us to dance and look and keep our weight down and, and say the right things. We, we, we weren't. We are, as we're like a binary code, we are each other complete but separate. And these are all great and powerful things in, in music today. Um, and I just feel so blessed that after 30 years and for not having spoken to each other in 30 years, we could have reconciled as adults and come together to, you know, open this sealed 
what is it, almost like an historically sealed time capsule and it's as fresh as the day it was in, It was created. It, it's as joyous and as punchy and punk and fun and audiences are just going off their nut for it. It's actually amazing. Now, and where are the ages between the low end, um, 52, and then you've got at the top end somewhere in the late 60s, all on stage and there's so there's no ageism, no discrimination, it's an incredibly, and, the, and the, the best part of it all, and this is the, the absolute best part of everything I learned from I'm Talking, apart from one song, it's all originals and they were all hits. Amazing. Yeah. You can't buy that for love or money today. Yeah. Can't so there's some of that emotion, that, uh, that so reconnection. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a mantle that's been hard won and we, we are so grateful for each other for having been grown up enough to find each other again and make it happen. Mm. I imagine because, yeah, you've had that recent experience and, and yeah, a powerful kind of reconnection, <laughs> reflection, probably also tapping back into the, what oh. it was, like you said, the punk rock, fun, yeah. independence, but yeah. together yeah. Uh, kind of Do you know the thing that, that I discovered, though, uh, and it became blaringly obvious that the the upsets were never amongst us. We it was only external pressure that brought us apart. People who had other motives, other agendas, who required different things from us than we were actually able to deliver. You know, sound more like blah. Let's put the two girls in front. Let's take you're too expensive to travel as a seven piece. Let's let's remove the two girls. Let's put them in with a with these um, creative machines and. And make them Mel and Kim, let's make them, you know, a pop team. I wasn't interested in being in a pop band. We weren't a pop band. Um, so, oh, my God, it's just... What does that insight give you now, so 30 years on? It makes them so much more darling to me. And the, I'm so so grateful for everything that that I had from the experience of being on, though it was only two years or three years long. Um, in that time, we had about five top ten hits and many, many awards. And but what I got out of it was an education. I got an education in art and the history of music and art, and it stayed with me my whole life. The foundation, the grounding mm. around that. Yeah, and I love the you know obviously this. Um, we're talking a little bit about your past and your history, but also that that it's in the now. So it's almost like the the reminiscing and the future is both here sitting in the present because you're also about to jump into your own tour. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's like a, it, um, there's a creative debris that's kind of that you travel with like a turtle. And, and I'm often thinking, I actually often get the image of those immigrants, the poor guys who had to have on their one singular truck every single piece of their objects of home, travelling into nowhere, knowing not knowing where they're going, how long it's going to take to get there and what will they actually need when they get to the other side. Um, hence why I, I, I dovetail back to that, those stories about the pianos. Those pianos often came in lieu of food, in lieu of clothing, in lieu of everything. They bought those bloody pianos with them all the way over as a souvenir of the life of who they once were. And so they'd never forget who they'd been. Mm, the symbology I'm so moved that. by that. That's yeah. why the end of this culture for me, for my grand, for my stepdad is it, it kills the part of me that's, that's kept a hope alive. Like, see, Europeans understand what art does for man. 
it's the last promise of civilization. It's the last promise that you emotionally can be invited to think differently from the tribe, to think differently from, to stand out from the slaves and have your own singular point of view. Like arts and culture gives you that that voice without words and that's why they bought those bloody pianos over with them. Um, yes, it's a beautiful memory. It's, it's yeah. a thought. And... Um, I don't know where we went to from there. I can't recall what we were talking about. No, I, I think that's a bit, you know, I kind of want to run down that rabbit warren as yeah. well because there's a symbology of actually this is so important and there is something about music and expression and oh, you, and you just sort of say. said that's, yeah. that's just part and parcel. Well, actually, no, Well, what I was going to say though is the creative debris, okay, so this is what I was, um, there is a debris just in the same way that one would carry all of that on their back. That's This is what my point. Mm. You can create, 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 create as an artist, but if there's no witness for your work, it's like a bear farting in the woods. It doesn't, it doesn't go like we just described as I walked into the studio. We've made a beautiful album, the sound engineer and I. It's actually it's a stunning, poignant album for children. It, it's emotional and it pl- takes them into an, a lovely, dreamy place. But moreover, it was written for the mothers who can't sing particularly, don't recall the nursery rhymes, to sit and hum to while they're feeding. It was like I wanted to give them a sound that they could vibrate through their bodies to relax their children. And that was the purpose behind the Lullaby Records. So it has a very, very strong purpose, but it's never been able to be released. And so... I could say all of that till the cows come home, but unless a mother's sitting home alone with her child clamped to her breast, having that experience, it doesn't actually exist. The album never existed. Mm. And I bear the baggage of that unplayed album on my shoulder, all the responsibilities of having spent the hours doing it, the musicians involved, the money it spent to make it, and it sits on my shoulder heavy. It sits heavy. I, I must release it or I must kill it. Like I have to, you have to sort of let these things go. You've got to let it, you've got to cut it free at one point or take it with you and promise that you will see that it gets a witness. So it's part of that debris that you're constantly That's kind it. of carrying with you and yeah. then at any point in time and like the pianos, you, you, it either pianos. finds a home or yes. actually you get here and it might be the piano but there might be something else that you bring and you realise actually we don't need the woolen jackets in the Gold Coast because... <laughs> Well, and this is where one would hope then on the other side of letting go of old Europe that their new life for them gave more gave more promise, gave more inspiration and that they were able to jettison old Europe knowing that they're secure and safe in the new world. You know, mm. like that's, mm. that, that to me, when, when this week um, I gave up a part of my angst as a teenager and all my trials and upsets and other things that happened during and at that time uh, that were beyond our control. And we, we, we all just gathered together as friends making this music and suddenly everything ended and there was no past. In fact, we sort of looked at each other and we thought, because we thought we were only going to do three shows and that was the end. And But we've had record companies. The same thing that happened to us as children, we've had record companies say, we've got to put you on a tour. We're going to make a new album. I'm like, we're looking at each other going, what's happening? (laughs) (laughs) This is just the weirdest thing. And perhaps now all of those final ties that bound us to 30 years ago are finally complete and ended. The debris is cutting over and and there's there's just this group of artists who 
for, for no reason at all should stop doing what they're doing. We should just keep doing what we're doing. Like, why not? Is there affirmation around the magic that was that, whether it was then, whether mm. it's now, there's kind of affirmation? Because I imagine there are times where it's amazing but there's just this thing that actually just makes that something tip, whether it's the right timing, the right mix, the right presence, the right. Oh, amazing. Um, I think that uh, in this world there are a few things that simply attract attention for reasons best known to man and God and, you know, dogs and whoever knows, <laughs> nightingales in forests and <laughs> and bears fighting in woods. Yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> just whatever it was we had an equality um, that was created by the force of the 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 individuals as a whole. It was never ever quite never quite felt the same. Though I had a great success on and after as a solo artist, because that's what I thought I craved. I thought I wanted to be the singular attention. I thought I wanted to be, um, you know, the one who was sort of hitting the drums. But as it turns out. Um, I'm not. I'm actually a real group player. Like I, I love it when everyone wins. If we go someone, want, I want everyone to come with us. <laughs> I don't want to. I, I, I've learnt my lesson. I've learnt the lesson of um, how lonely it can feel being surrounded by um, uh, love them as I might but paid musicians. It's never the same feeling. It's not the same feeling. Interesting, fascinating insight. I'd love to come back to some of your kind of experiences and particularly this link around the power of expression of music and mm-hmm. the, the the connection that can come from that. And I'm thinking even, I mean, even yesterday at the Oscars we saw Lady Gaga's um, performance yeah. around her song and Bradley Cooper was there, but it was yeah. Lady Gaga's performance sure. and powerful and you see people kind of connect. Yeah. Is there, because you would have so many of those experiences, yeah. is there any that come to mind as kind of standout ones where you just go, whether it's the magic, the timing, the alignment, something just happened in that moment yeah. that almost couldn't be recreated again. Yeah. Well, I do remember very clearly being at the Fox Studios before it was open to the public. It was just a um, huge exhibition hall and we'd been put together a cast who as yet hadn't met each, actually met each other to sing um, and it was John Stevens, John Farnham, John Waters, myself, Angry Anderson. This was for Jesus Christ Superstar. And they were building the, st- the, the set, which would eventually go into the entertainment halls. We all arrived um, to, for our first run through and there was an orchestra in the pit and it, and it was shaped on a, um, uh, is it a diocese? I think that's, is that a cross? Does that, yeah. And, uh, and, and so there was a, 40, 60-piece orchestra or something in the centre and a 40, 60-piece vocal choir. I've never had anything quite like this happen. But we walked in and the choir were opening the first stanza, which is... And I burst into tears. I just went, what the fuck is happening? I felt like I left through the top of my head and I was floating like, it was like sort of, it was sublime. It was like this experience. So why, the, and then the, then the track begins. You may have been too young to have seen this. No, but. I'm, I'm getting goosebumps because I actually came to Sydney oh, and saw the performance. So, so, okay. Yes. And well, then Chet, who's an electric guitarist, found, and he's just like, 
rips into the next sort of sound. It was a dunk, 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 dunk. And I hadn't yet met John. John, like me, had practised his whole life for this role. John John Stevens. He's over in the far corner on the far end of the cross and I'm walking into this side over here. It's as though it was like stage manager's way and he's just been given a hand mic and he sings, my mind is clearer now, at last, all too well. And without having to be asked, we all went into character. I instantly became Mary. He's became this predatory, troubled Judas, loving, hating in equal measure. And I was walking across the stage as he's singing and then the next part, when John comes in, (laughs) he came in from another part of the stage and I just looking at this, looking at the way this had, the way life had orchestrated this experience for us and in and at that moment, it became more important than anything else we'd ever done in our singular careers. It was like an amazing, amazing classical experience. It's like being part of an opera, a very powerful opera, one that meant more to its public than even to the players. And we were booked for only eight shows or something like that. It went for 80 shows around the country and they could have kept going and they could have kept going. And every single night when all of us were standing on our respective ends of the cross and that opening stanza, I would have exactly the same feeling as the day I walked into Fox Studios and and that impact. So I can't say... Um, anything else has ever felt ever quite as grand as that. And the reason why I say that, it's probably because um, Lloyd Webber's history of music has followed uh, the greatest impressionists of time, so Debussy, um, you know, people I love to listen to personally, um, Beethoven, all the great classics, Wagner, and his music was in and at that moment. I don't, I'm not really a big fan of every one of their other musical shows. This one is impregnated with everything he's loved and was trying to imitate from the great classic orchestrators and, and, and composers. It's in there. And it's like, and it's the best of um, Tim's intellect Sometimes they go into musical theatre and things get a bit toy and I don't often like that they sort of rhymey, rhymey and a bit silly. He was describing his own uh, confusion with trying to work out what the story was meant to mean and he was using it. Like I, I spoke to him a lot at great length during the time we were doing it and there was this, uh, you know, just with all things biblical, with all things religious actually, they use a didactic premise, which is you set up a story to tell someone how to feel, what the moral outcome is, where you should sit in terms of society, what's best for the world around you. Should you take this piece of information and you go and employ it in your life, how will you be better for it? I don't know, Tim managed that so well. He spoke for every person, religious or otherwise, mm. from any religion, and all he sought was to find the goodness in man and why we go astray. And it's in there. The libretto is fantastic. Mm. I don't underestimate any portion of that play as having been a powerful and important message. So whichever way you read it, it was the best thing I ever did in my life. Yeah, that's what came to mind when you were describing that. It was almost like this incredible gift of Andrew Lloyd Webber's music <laughs> with this story that 
you know. They never the, really got it quite as good as that, that for me. Yeah. I, you know, everything else was just I love what they've done. And ironically they, they won't be in the same room and they won't let anyone perform it anymore because they hate each other so much they don't want either of them to earn any royalties for it. Yeah, right. Isn't that amazing? So they actually so don't... So, again, this timing, yeah, the space we were, to have... We were the last... John Farnham, John uh, Stevens, and it's probably part of that band thing around, you know, people kind of wanting to have the other person yes. shine in their role. Yes, that, uh, exactly. That would have come together. Exactly. Tell me what led you to say yes to that because obviously oh, that oh, is they had, a they, I didn't say yes. I begged them for the job. I um, I knew... Well, I was sitting in North Bowen... This was before all the bands had started, watching the first version of that on television. So I was about 13. When I discovered that Yvonne Ellingman was half Hawaiian, I already knew coming from Baldwin I had some odds stacked against me. Well, not quite black enough, not quite white enough, not quite thin enough, not quite blue-eyed enough, not quite all these things. Couldn't get in any stage musical that I was dreaming of at the time, like Annie Get You Go. I couldn't do any of it. The only thing I could do was to play the good girls in West Side Story and stuff, but I didn't want to play the good girls. I wanted to play the, you know, I like to live in America. I didn't want to do the tonight. <laughs> so didn't want those roles. I'm watching the Robert Stigwood film and Yvonne Elliman finds me and she she finds me soulfully and aesthetically this beautiful vision of a Eurasian singer, Hawaiian Eurasian. And before I had joined any band, before I was going to even discover a career in music, I looked at her and I said, that is the role I will play in my life. It was the only singular one thing I knew more than I knew my own name. And so when it came up and um, I was invited to audition, I walked into the audition, I said, you're not going to give this role to anyone else because I've lived my whole life to play this role. They obviously listened. <laughs> they had no choice. <laughs> Setting the stars, everyone else can go home. <laughs> they can all leave. I, I, you know, I've poisoned all their, their water bottles. I've, I've set a bomb under every one of their cars. There's no one's going to get that job at me. So I think there's great power in the stuff we we say yes to, and and obviously part of your career has been not only the music, the sound, the singing. It's been the entertaining, um, you know, the theatre, television, uh, whole gamut of things. Mm-hmm. I'm really fascinated in the things that we say no to, as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Do you have a sense of that being hard or easy yeah. to get clear for yourself, and has that changed over time? Yeah, yeah. I I, I definitely enjoyed being liked a lot when I was a kid. So you often say yes more than you should say yes. And um, I think that, um, you know, on pop cultures and certainly with um, a lot of pop psychology today, we're, in, we're encouraged to say yes more. It's as though we're, people just assume we're all inhibited. But actually yes can be a very disabling, uh, especially if it becomes a habit. As we know now, there's mistakes, there's too much of... My grandmother used to say, a little of what you fancy does your good. Well, the same is, there's like a little measure of no works best for yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, if you hold back just that little bit and you watch and look and listen a little longer, sometimes you'll discover the things and people who um, don't deserve your yes and you need to know what you're worth and you need to know what, what currency that yes is going to give you when it's placed in, the pl- in a time and a place when it when it's the best for everyone. I've said yes to things and it's been a fracker, a total fuck up. 
Mm. Um, and, you know, and you have to wear it out in life. You have to live to get over it. And eventually you do get beyond that, but, oh, my God. And all you did was open your stupid mouth and said yes. <laughs> Why did you do it? <laughs> um, someone who I've always loved and admired growing up is Deborah Conway. We're good friends and... Other strong women too, actually, Renee Geyer and Chrissy Amphlett, I grew up with them as well. And um, I don't know a lot of other women like that of my generation. We're not developing enough women who say no with enough power. So that's interesting. It's, yeah. it's one thing to say no and another thing to say it with, with power. power. Yeah. Un- unpack that for me. Yeah, well, I mean, even if you're right, it, or rather even if you're wrong, you should still be able to exert power to say it. I'm not talking in terms of like... I mean, we're in the midst of a very loud and a messy debate at the moment um, because there are injured people in amongst people who just don't know how to use yes and no properly. Hmm. Um, There are people like my daughter, for instance, I'll I'll use this as a didactic story. We went to see a Tim Burton novel that was on film and it was awesome. um, My daughter was about eight or nine at the time and she she said, because she'd seen the film, she said, Mum, you're not going to like the lead character, but just don't judge him because he's not a bad guy. He's just been badly trained. And I was like, "Wow, that's heavy. And I thought that through the, through the mouths of babes, yeah. a lot of people are badly trained. So, you know, like if, you, if you're going to, and so they're not bad people, but you must say no to them anyway. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right? They're yeah. not bad people. You mustn't judge them particularly. You just look what they do and you go, oh, that person hasn't got a clue. I'm going to say no to that because they're going to, you know, wind up really in shit. So anyway, my point is, I guess, what I'm trying to say, um, you have to watch and you have to be able to have um, skills to observe and look at the look at the actions of others and determine maybe where they're going to head to. And try to be there rather than in the moment going, yes, that's a fabulous idea, and then lose everything. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes we, we need to say the yeses in order to learn the pain. True To enough. know when we say, yeah, we say the noes. But, yeah. but I think, um, and I, I like that description of not only being able to say no, but where's the, the power that comes behind that and being yes. okay with that for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Like I've put myself singularly in some very dangerous environments, but I did that. Because I was saying yes to something in me, some primal need in me that needed to be in that place with those people at that time, knowing full well that I was at risk. And there's a point where you have to take responsibility for your yeses, even though at the end of the day you could turn around and at any instance I could say, well, you were all older than me, you knew all better than me, but right from the get-go, there's, did you step in a car? Did you walk out in the street? Did you do this? And, and and there is this argument, you see, that you should be free to do any of those. Yes, but you should also be free to listen to yourself in and at that time and say, no, I'm not going to be there. I don't need your friendship if it means that no is going to upset you. Mm. I'm going to walk away now. I'm going to stay at home now. I'm going to go away from this group. I'm not going to need your, you know, that's a very hard task. Yeah, and that takes task. a lot of um, education. Education. Because it, I also think it's that ability to go, it's okay that if I said yes last week but today it's a no, that that's okay of course. as well. <laughs> so the yeah. time, it can be around timing as much yeah. around steps. Well, I wrote a song called True Romantic once about um, uh, call me crazy, call me vain, um, 
but you know, I'll say it again and again that I'm not so stupid. Um, I don't complain when my love, when, when, when it says I'm not, and I'm not so stupid. I don't complain um, when my luck is down. Tomorrow's another day. Tomorrow's another day. I was talking about true romantic. I think that if you hold true to the part of you that can change your mind and make sure that it's okay to change your mind anytime you want to, then that's a survival skill worth knowing. Yeah, yeah. There's obviously, and even through this conversation, just a depth of thinking in you, (laughs) absorbing the world and taking it in and, and understanding. What I've also seen and noticed and over your career is this kind of almost joy and effervescence mm-hmm. on stage, um, which is probably part of that muse that just kind of can't not be like part of who you are. <laughs> are, there, are there things that um, allow you to tap into that, regardless of what else is kind of going on? Uh, do you have even just in a really practical kind of sense to help I, tap back into joy? I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm a bit, it's a bit Pavlovian in that the stage itself delivers me so much joy that just the environment alone, my, my senses respond. You know, all the adrenals turn on and my eyes kind of go into this kind of, I mean, to me I've never needed any drugs because it's a drug. I, I actually get quite delirious on stage. It's, it's something primal in me. Um, but the way I manage it, because and manage it, you must, it's like anything that you can get too much of, you know, you, you can get quite lost on that, is um, I find it in literature, I read books, like I, I read about three novels a week minimally, like, or at least I'll have three going at the same time. And what that helps me do is steady me because I've actually always, my one thing I've always had and never had control over is my enthusiasm and sometimes... Um, it's it's exhausting. <laughs> it's like yeah. watching a kid on too much sugar. Like I can get like that. I can actually get where. Oh my god, we're going to do this and blah 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 blah. And like friends falling in exhaustion around me. My husband's like running to keep up with me. You know, like it's like just this this constant going somewhere, not quite getting there fast enough. Words anchor me, literature, great literature anchors me in a moment mm-hmm. that's very present and and it doesn't go like watching a television drama where you're like you're, you're champing towards the end. Literature doesn't do that for me. It allows me to hover and experience. I look at it and it's almost like it's the perfect remedy for this mental mind because I go, I hover around the phrase and I look at it and I go, oh, what, did the, what did the author want me to understand right in this phrase? There's, I know there's another, he's got another reason why he's written it in this way. And then I observe the art form in him and I feel like I'm his witness in the dark that somewhere or there's, you know, she's written it, it so that I, I, I'm looking behind you, behind you, but it's all written in the text. You don't know there's something yet behind the person. But I love that. I love the mystery. I find that literature gives me mystery that I've never owned in my own life. Yeah, wow. So it's almost like it gives a groundedness to the energy. Yeah. To actually go, right, well, I'll, I'll focus it here rather than <laughs> I, I, the million things and the ideas yes, where exactly. I want to go. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's a powerful kind of realisation in the moment. Yeah. What's exciting you about what's next on the horizon? Well, I had a really golden gift presented to me by a young artist I'm working with. Um, she's 23 and I call her Keith after Keith Richards, but she actually looks like 
Neil Young. <laughs> I should call her Neil, but Neil doesn't sound quite as cool as Keith. Keith's good. Um, Kathleen Halloran's her name and she's a, she's a giant. She's almost like a soul returned. I don't know. I don't really understand how she can be quite as good as she is at her age. I mean, I wonder if it's the same things people were labelling me with at that age. It was like, how does she know this music? Why does she know? She just knows. Anyway, um, we started working together when we worked in an all-female orchestra with a under a lovely other artist named Zannie Kay, a composer. Um, I walked into the rehearsal studio and I just looked at her and I went, you, like, who the fuck are you? You're just, you're just someone, you've done this, you're just someone, someone I know. Anyway, her connection was made. Cut to a few months later. She's bound a book. She got into my work, my early original work, and she has bound what's called a real book, um, which is all of my original work in chart form with all the lyrics printed and, you know, 80 songs or something of, of un, some known, some successful, some unsuccessful, but all my original work and has given it back to me and I'm sitting at the piano because I write on the piano but I discard the songs once they're written so I don't know how to play them again afterwards. I don't, I don't study them to keep playing them, I'm not like Billy Joel. Mm-hmm. I love to get away from the piano. Um, but I'm sitting and I'm, I'm working on these songs and it's like it's a gift. It's this most golden gift. She's given me all these songs that I loved and I had a reason for writing. Later this year I'm putting them all into orchestration form to work with the MSO and, oh, and that's amazing. what she gave me, that gift, and that could be somewhere I might just hover for a while yeah. on that experience. Yeah, beautiful. Kind of pull those threads mm. back together again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and uh, I imagine some of those people have, whether it's the audience or people that have heard those over the years, have got their own interpretation they of do. some of those threads. They do. It's a. It's like a our life in symphony. You know, like, um, it, you know, when you hear those doom chords, the the sub, <laughs> this when you know you've got the mu- the musical piece, um, on the top, which comes back to whenever the person that the actor's happy, and then mm-hmm. then suddenly just she's turned a corner and the music has this sudden introduction of a very dark note. Well, it's all <laughs> it's all in there. Like yeah. you can hear, I'm tracing through all the songs as I'm relearning them. I'm here. I'm seeing all my lost love. I'm seeing my, you know, my the hopes I had for something that just that I was disappointed in. I'm listening to myself working it out through music. It's Mm. really lovely. And I love you even had that expression before of the witness in the dark. It's almost allowing that for the audience of the next next piece. Well, imagine if you were allowed to sit through at the end of your life in a a cinema reel made by one of the greatest film directors in the world, like a Fellini or someone, and you were watching your life, all the bits, all the outtakes, not not the rehearsed roles, not the ones you played really well, but all the outtakes, and you were able to see how human your experience had been in this lifetime, and you'd love all of those bits better than the script, and that's what I hope to get at the end of my life, where the outtakes have been the most important parts of my life. That flips it on its head and makes you go, okay, today. Yeah. The, the thing that was just a bit shit or just Yeah, that annoying. was a bit shit. Actually, it actually was really important. It might be in my highlight reel. <laughs> exactly. Which is given beautiful. Because given the right music, mm. given the right context, um, I'll tell you, for instance, an outtake, and it was it's probably the most precious but saddest outtake of my life. My grandmother, who I was raised with in the house, 
Um, and one of the reasons that kept goodness alive in my family on every level, she just was, you know, a little Gandhi. She had Gandhi. <laughs> she was just fabulous. Um, so uh, depending, and, and people have different views on this, but I believe that there's a, an essential part of us that recycles and reincarnates into life and I don't know in what way. I can't prove anything, but that's what I believe. And she was struggling to die um, for reasons that, that were so ironic. She was so healthy, her body wouldn't quit, right? The cell on a, on, she'd, she'd just been so good with her life and she was one of the first, you know, she'd started Natura and she, she used to eat meticulously and take her vitamins and walk every day and she was like, you know. She's laying there, these bright blue eyes, they're as bright as a 12-year-old, 10-year-old, and she's saying, look, I'm going to have to neglect my body in order for it to fade away. I can't. It's just I can't. It's, it's, it needs to go. It's, it, this is the end of its cycle, but I, it won't die. And I said, well, well, my mum and I both got into conversation. Well, tell us a bit more about that. What's, what's concerning you, Grandma? She said, well, I'm okay with dying. I don't want to go anywhere in between. I want to just come back or find you again. I just... And so I said to her, well, I'll go and make you a body. I mean, at this stage I hadn't had a baby. And and she felt very relieved at that concept mm. and just shortly after died. And it was like, it was a perfect remedy. It, did, it doesn't have to be true. My point is if you can say it and mean it, it can be enough. It has meaning. Yeah. It? And yeah. she said, you know, just come back to me, come back to us, don't go anywhere. Just come straight back to us. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, I don't, I don't ever think I don't. I never just. I don't follow through or try to. You know, just and that's and she, the bird flew and that was the end. And I feel her everywhere. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. And the Trinity remains. So those bodies. Yeah. You made multiple bodies. Yeah, right. For her to come and have that expression. Yeah. 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 Beautiful story. Your. Um, I'd love to keep chatting, but I'm really <laughs> conscious of time yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, you are about to start to tour, though. So people um, actually, I'm, well, I'm in the midst of a multitude of different tours. There's, so there's the I'm Talking, finishing that with Brian Ferry this weekend. Um, there's, uh, which we have had, as I said, the most um, rejuvenating experience together, all of us. It's been really delightful. I've got a tour with um, my dear friend and and musical love affair, Paul Grabowski. He and I just recorded an album together, which is sublime, like just gorgeous. Um, I'm working on this orchestration for uh, what will be 30 years of Brave, since Brave, uh, to work with the MSO, hopefully. We're just coordinating that this week. And, you know, just putting up shows each and every day and keeping my quill sharp, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, keeping the muse, giving yeah, an outlet keeping to the, the muse. muse. <laughs> keeping the muse, yeah, keeping her, yeah, I've got to run Fed around the water. park so she sleeps at night. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to come full circle. So the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does that mean to you? What does it mean? What comes up for you when you hear? What does it take? I think of um, the tall poppy and, that you know, it's, uh, it's time to... Um, let yourself grow without inhibition. That's what I think. And be the head amongst the crowd. Um, do your best not to be a slave and try to ask yourself, what would I do in this situation, not what would they do? Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time, no Kate. Worries. And keep sharing uh, the gift of the art with others because that's when it really comes to life. Cool. Thanks. 
If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.